All right, microphone works this week. <laughs> that helps. Uh, good evening. Welcome. I'm glad you're able to make it here a uh, week after Thanksgiving. Um, I, me and my wife and child, Henry, we uh, stayed here locally. My wife's family is very um, large um, in numbers, and um, we uh, go to one of my wife's uh, aunt's house, and there's there had to have been 60 of us there, and, and you don't even really, I, you know, and I married into the family, right? So it's me and all the other outlaws, right? We all kind of hang out together and chat and complain. No, I'm kidding, we don't, but, um, uh, but it's, it, we, we do have a good time. It's, it's, it's fun to have a family that, that size um, that still likes getting together, if that, if that makes sense. Um, not everyone has that, so I'm very grateful for, for that and marrying into a family like that. Um, so anyways, thanks for being here. Um, just again, I want to. I'm going to be saying this every week, but uh, on the uh, 23rd, that is a Sunday night, obviously here, we won't be having service. We're going to be doing a combined service with downtown that day. Um, so I'll make sure that there's a sign out front. You know, it says, "Sorry, you missed us," but um, we will not be having service that night. We will be combining, and then the next day is going to be Christmas Eve. Uh, if you remember last year, we did a candlelight service here with First Baptist, but this year downtown's going to be hosting. So we'll be jumping uh, uh, downtown with them as well. So uh, that is the plan. So don't come here on the 23rd or the 24th. Um, nothing will be happening. Well, maybe the 24th, First Baptist is still doing something. I need to check with them. But um, anyways, okay. Um, there was something else I wanted to say when I got up here and I didn't write it down. And so therefore I have forgotten it. And so it wasn't that important. So we're going to move on. Um, when I was in junior high, and I think I've shared this before, but I've, I've been the same height uh, since sixth grade. So I've been six foot two since sixth grade, which sounds cool until it causes health issues. You know, I had two lung surgeries and yada, yada, all this stuff because I grew too fast. My bones, my it, organs couldn't keep up with the bone structure, just to put it lightly. Um, and so <laughs> I, I was huge, and I was actually kind of coordinated, but I was way too big for my size and uh, for my age, I should say. And, and I, so I had all, you know, I had these, you know, you know, uh, birthday party photos of me and all my friends that are up to my hips. And, uh, but it was a lot of fun in basketball. You know, I was, you know, dunking in seventh grade, can't dunk anymore. I was the same height, but about a hundred pounds less. Uh, so I, I could jump back then. I'm like now. Um, and, uh, but anyways, I, I was, I was actually pretty decent at basketball, mainly just because I was huge, right? I, I, everyone else caught up to me in high school. And then I realized I actually wasn't that uh, athletic. Um, I just was bigger than everybody. But every day in PE, we would play, we'd play basketball. Maybe not every day, but a lot in the winter months we would when we were inside. And, and uh, I had a really good friend of mine. His name was Sibby Samuel. And uh, we uh, were really good friends, but he, he was exact opposite of me. He was uh, really smart in class. Uh, you know, both of his parents were doctors. Uh, he, he, but he was short and very unathletic. And yet we were really good buddies, and we would hang out a lot, and, and I got to know his family and vice versa. And, and um, he, one day he kind of confided in me and said that he, he hated P.E. because he always got picked last or just wouldn't get picked. You know, he was that kid where it was like, whose team is he going to end up being on because he'll be the last pick? That's how it always was. And I felt really bad for him, right? He was my friend, and I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that because I was always the team captain. And so uh, our PE teacher gets two of us out there, and we're choosing teams. And my first pick, I said, I want to pick Sibby. And I remember the PE teacher actually came over to me. He was like, you sure you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, yes, man. Like, come on. Like, give him a chance, you know. And so, so I picked Sibby. And, and then, you know, of course, the other captain, he picks the other good, you know, another really good player, right? He doesn't, you know, 
help out along with me. No, he, he picks someone else really good, and I go, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Steve Eggerdahl, man. I'm gonna get all the short, unathletic kids on my team. And, and so I start picking all these, these kids, and I, I got them over. I said, man, we're, listen, I'm gonna work my tail off. If you work your tail off for me, we're gonna, we're gonna win. We're gonna beat these guys. And uh, to be honest, I don't remember if we won or not. Um, I'll just say we did. But it was actually, I remember cheating a lot that game. Um, the, uh, the, the PE teacher would just stand at half court and he wouldn't move. He would just stand there. So he couldn't see if I was driving the lane or, you know, shooting a hoop close to the basket. And, and so I remember when I would drive, I would hit my own arm. I'd foul myself. Um, and he would hear the slap. And if you got fouled, you, you actually got a point. So if the other team fouled me, we would get a point. And so then I would shoot free throws so I could turn a little play into a three-point play pretty easily. And uh, so I don't remember if we won. But anyway, I, I wanted to be inclusive. In, in that scenario, and that's really what we're talking about tonight, and every analogy breaks down, all right? And in that story, I represent Jesus. I'm not Jesus um, and in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, but I want to look at this idea of inclusion and the narrative that we're looking at and we've been at. And this is week seven of the waters in which we swim, the cultural dogmas, and then the gospel response. What is, what is culture saying us? What is the water that we're swimming in that we don't even realize we're swimming in? Last week, we looked at politics. We've been looking at... Um, uh, truth, what is truth, uh, all these different things. And so this week, though, we're going to be looking at inclusive, that we need to be inclusive. Next week, uh, Pastor Steve will be here uh, giving me a little bit of a break, and he'll be wrapping up this uh, topic on uh, inclusive, uh, not inclusivism, tolerance or intolerance. And so what is the narrative? What is the narrative that, that we hear, that we know, that we experience uh, in our culture around us? And it's this, that being excluded is painful, right? And we all know that it is, right? For Sibby Samuel, not getting picked ever is painful, even on that level, right? It, being excluded is painful. Therefore, we should be inclusive of all people. We shouldn't question their methods, their motives, what their version of truth is. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but we should just include everybody because it's it hurts to be excluded, right? That's the narrative that we're, that we're told and that we sit in. And so topics intersecting with the inclusion narrative, and, and these phrases are going to bring up different things in your minds, right? Standing or sitting for the national anthem, right? Let's just include baking a wedding cake, discussing immigration, adopting, uh, ad adapting to food allergies, right? That's a, that's a big one. Um, I actually made a joke at a the, one of the last previous weddings I did and uh, they were one of the first couples that I did a wedding where they didn't have food allergies. Did I already share this story? And I quoted the late, great John Panette, and he said, uh, he said, I don't, know what, I don't know what gluten is, but it's delicious, okay? And that, that is true. I don't, and he, he goes on to say, why they haven't made, I can't believe it's not gluten spread yet, I don't know, because <laughs> that would be tasty, um, but not possible. Okay, uh, the next one, responding to uh, changing gender and sexual norms. Uh, addressing historic issues of race, uh, power, et cetera. And that list goes on and on and on, right? And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We're on the wrong side of, of history. And so um, this is what we're going to be talking about when we look at this inclusion narrative. Because when we look at the church, the church has been for many years, thousands of years since its beginning, viewed as exclusive. That if you don't look like me, you don't talk like me, you don't act like me, then you can't do this. And you need to put your norms, your culture, your language to the side in order to adopt my religion and my faith of Christianity. 
And so this is something we've been up against. But what I want to do tonight is I want to look at what does Scripture say? Does Scripture teach anything on this idea of being inclusive or exclusive? And so that's really what the goal is for tonight. So I want to look at how the, excuse me, how the gospel message is radically, radically inclusive. That's the gospel. That's the whole point of the gospel. And so I want to look at uh, three different scenarios and stories of where Jesus just beautifully puts the gospel on display and says, all who are weary, come. So I want to uh, set the stage before we jump into this. Um, the, the first passage I'm looking at is Mark chapter 2. And um, I forgot handouts. I apologize. You don't have any. But I, all the scripture will be on the screen and I'll obviously read it all. Um, so the first thing is setting the stage of who, who is in these three narratives, and at least, at least two of the three, and then the third one, I think you can kind of connect the dots. You have, you have Jesus, and you have the, uh, what, these, this group of people that are called the, the tax collectors and sinners, and then you have the religious group that are the Pharisees and Sadducees, and these stories are just going to be the Pharisees. We have these two groups, and the Pharisees would be the religious leaders, the pastors, the, the priests of the day. And that they, they knew the Bible. They had it memorized, uh, at least the, the first five books of, of their Old Testament. And they, and they would just preach religion and morality in the sense of their whole idea is they wanted every Jew to abide by their really strict rules. Because if everybody abides by those rules, then, then maybe the Messiah will come back. But right now, we're in exile. At least at the time, even though they were in Jerusalem, they believed they were in exile because the Roman government was overseeing them still, right? They were under occupation from another government. So they said, let's get back to strict Levitical priesthood kind of living, and then maybe, then maybe God will shine his favor on us, okay? And I think that a lot of these Pharisees had good intentions. I really do. I, I think that they wanted what was best for their people, but the problem is they weren't teaching the gospel. They weren't even teaching the Old Testament. And by, by faith in the promises of God, they were teaching religion and morality. And then you have this group of people that are called tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors are traitors. There's, there's no other word for it. It would be um, like this, okay? They, they didn't just collect taxes. Like, they weren't just, like, working for the IRS or something. They were under occupation from the Roman government. So that would be, let's just say, and I, I was trying to think, what's a good nation to say takes us over? So I, <laughs> I feel like every, I, everything could be built. We'll just say Russia, because maybe that's the most realistic, okay? So Russia takes over, right? They, they occupy the United States. And what they do is that, but they say, hey, listen, we're going we're gonna to control everything, but we will let you uh, keep worshiping your gods. We'll let you uh, keep driving your automobiles. Praise Jesus. Um, we'll let you, whatever, right? We're going to do all these things. Let you in, in do your culture and just keep doing you, except you got to pay taxes to the Russians. And so what we need is we need some, uh, some uh, you know, ambassadors. We need some, some tax collectors, right? And so for me as a pastor, your pastor, to say, yep, hey, Russians, sign me up. Right, and so I, I go and I knock on your door, and you're like, "Oh, hey, Brian, good to see you." And I'm like, "Ah, I'm here on official business. I need some money <laughs> for for the occupying government." Okay, that's what tax collectors were. They were traitors. They were they were the scum of the earth when it came to their culture and Jewish culture. And then and then there were sinners. And sinners is a broader category, but it was it was literally a class of people. That when they said sinners, people knew exactly what that meant. These were people who were Jewish ethnically, but were not practicing Jews. 
uh, they were just labeled as sinners. These were people who might have had some kind of deformity. Um, they were viewed as sinners because they believed that this deformity was a cause of sin. Not true. Um, and so that would have been in there as well. There would have been prostitutes, uh, gamblers, people who were like known by their sin kind of a thing. Those were people that were in this category. Okay, so those are the two groups of people. And then you have, then you have Jesus. So that's, that's the stage. So I want to look at the first example that we have here in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 says this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. And a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. All right, those two, two groups of people are there. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. All right, this guy is a tax collector sitting there collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. And Jesus says, follow me. One of his original disciples was a traitor, was a tax collector, the scum of the earth. And Jesus says, follow me. Jesus held him. And Levi got up and followed him. And then it says, while well, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Okay, so, so, so Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of narrative here. But clearly, Levi and Jesus are hanging out. Levi's like, hey, I've got money because I've been stealing from people for a long time. So how about you come over to my house and we'll have dinner together. So Jesus, while Jesus is having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Okay, that's, that's the picture. The outcasts of, of, of society that you don't associate with these people because if you hang out with them, you might, you, you're, you're saying you approve, you're saying you're like them, fill in the blanks. That's what the religious groups are thinking at least. And while they were eating with him and his disciples, uh, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right, this, is, this is a cultural no-no. Right? According to them, you need to be incredibly exclusive to uphold your religion and your morality. And yet here we have Jesus, the creator of all, eating with these outcasts of society. And what does he say? On hearing this, Jesus says this to them. Right? They say it to the disciples. Hey, disciples, why is it that Jesus does this? And Jesus hears him and he says this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. But what they're not getting, the Pharisees, what they don't understand is that they too are sinners. And I'm sure that when they heard Jesus say this, they're like, oh, yeah, I get it, because I'm righteous. Okay, all right, you don't need to eat with us. I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. And that's not what happens. Jesus says, no, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm here for all the sick. I'm here for all who would recognize and put themselves in the category of a sinner and recognize that they have fallen short of the glory of God. The second example that we see of the gospel of Jesus Christ being radically inclusive is from Luke chapter 19. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. If you grew up in a church like me, you maybe knew the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> I had a weird childhood. Uh, he was, this guy, Zacchaeus, was the chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. All right? he, he wasn't just like a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. All right? He was the chief of all the bad guys. 
And he was wealthy. Again, how is he wealthy? He's, he's skimming money off the top. He's, he's cheating people. And he wanted to see who Jesus was. Do you think? Don't you think if you're a tax collector in that society and you have this, this famous teacher going around healing people and, and doing miracles, and yet he's eating with tax collectors. One of his closest disciples was a, a tax collector. Of course Zacchaeus wants to see him. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but... He was a wee little man, right? But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And again, paint this picture in your mind. You've got this crowd of, of individuals pressing up, trying to see Jesus, trying to hear him teach. And you've got Zacchaeus, who isn't just short, he's also a tax collector. He's getting shoved and kicked and spit on any moment that, the, that a Jew could, that they're just, they're just dogging on this guy. So what's he do? He runs ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree, sycamore fig tree, to see him since he was coming that way. He says, okay, I know which Jesus is going. I'm going to run down the road a little bit. I'm going to climb a tree. This is a picture of a sycamore tree, really low-hanging branches. Would have been easy for anybody to climb. And so he climbs up into that tree. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And then what's he say here? Talk about inclusive. I must stay at your house today. This is, in our culture, when we, when we eat meals with people, it, it, it means something, it shows something, but I can meet a stranger and have a meal with them and, and a business meeting or, or whatever it may be. And, and this was incredibly intimate in their, in their culture. Now, when you, you, you bring someone into your house, you go over to somebody's house, you're saying, I, I'm part of this. That whatever's happening, they would recline. They would lie down and, and lean on one another and make a, a circle around the food. It was this incredibly different picture than how we eat, uh, at least in the United States. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. <laughs> Here it is again. And what's Jesus' response? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possession to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And we could go back to the Levitical law and what, what was required of him and these things. He, he way outdoes himself. As far as what the, what the Old Testament teaches a Jew should do in a situation like this, he, he goes above and beyond. He's recognizing and realizing that he is guilty, but Jesus wants to help him. And in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's a son of mine. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. One word on the word lost there. Lost doesn't mean damned. It doesn't mean doomed. It simply means, and it may sound cheesy, it means this thing is not where it should be. That's what happens when something's lost. It's not where it should be. And Jesus is saying, there are people here who I need to call and bring to myself, and they're not there yet. And he came to seek and to save the lost. The third example that we have of seeing how the gospel is radically inclusive comes from John chapter 4. It says this, now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was uh, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. Okay, so Jesus didn't baptize anybody, his disciples did, but he's, he, he doesn't want to get into a baptism controversy here, okay? So in verse 3 it says, So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Okay, so on a map you have Judea on the bottom uh, portion of this map by the Mediterranean Sea uh, to the uh, west. 
and then you've got Judea there, and then Samaria in the middle, and then on the top of that is Galilee. Now, if you were to go straight from Judea, at least where he was, up through and to Galilee, which would have been his hometown, it was about a three days journey, three days walk. He doesn't do that. Or at least that's what he does. But, but culturally, Jews didn't do that. Jews would actually go to the east and cross, uh, cross the Jordan River there and then head north and then cross the Jordan River again and then get up into Galilee. They would completely avoid this middle section of Samaria. Right? Why, would that, why would he do that? Why does he not skip through that? Why, or why does, why does he take the shortcut and travel through this land? All right, so let, let John here do the narrating and then I will uh, add some things here. It says, now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground of, that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Very famous, well-known. The well is actually there to this day. It's 100 feet deep. Um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty big, pretty big deal that, that they needed water, obviously, in the middle of the desert. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Why? All right, a little, little history lesson here. What's going on between the Samaritan woman and, and, and Jesus who would have been a Jew? In 720 B.C., and i got to look at my notes here. This is not coming from my brain, that's for sure. In 720 B.C., okay, the Assyrians invade Samaria. They take it over. They, 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 they totally take it over. And then in that culture, in that ancient culture, they would just uh, capture as many people as they can, could and would bring them home as slaves. That's what would happen. But yet, the Assyrians would also stay and indwell and inhabit that land, okay? But there were also some people who were left behind, right? So there were some at that time, Jews who lived in Samaria that were living there, but they assimilated, assimilated in with the um, Assyrian culture, and they would have remarried, and they would have married some of these other Assyrians. And so in doing so, uh, they, they, they lose their bloodline that is so vitally important to Jews and ethnic Jews, okay? So that's why the Jews don't, that's part of why the Jews don't associate with the Samaritans, because they would say, you, you, you've mingled your blood. You're no longer a pure Jew. You're no longer a son of Abraham. You're, you're, you're a half-breed, right? You're a nothing. You're a nobody. You're a, you're, like, they're, they're racist in this situation here. Right? You're not as good as my ethnicity is. And so that was part of it. As a matter of fact, to this day, according to uh, William Barclay, he was a, a commentary I was reading uh, earlier this week, he says that even to this day in Orthodox Jews and their families, that if, if a child marries a non-Jew, they actually will conduct a funeral. And I've never heard of that other than what I read today, but I saw it, you know, it wasn't on the internet, but it, you know, maybe it's not true, but um, right? it's very serious to, to mingle the blood is what, is what uh, they're saying here. Now, it doesn't just stay there. In Babylon, the Jews right under uh, Nebuchadnezzar, they're, they're taken over. Right, so then Judea is taken over in the area that was to the south there where Jerusalem was. They get taken over. What happens? They remain separate. They don't intermarry. Right? So when they both come out of exile and they're allowed under Cyrus, I think, of, of some country, they are allowed to go back to Jerusalem and build the wall and rebuild Jerusalem. And the Samaritans actually come to the Jews and say, hey, how, let us help. Let us help rebuild the temple. And the Jews say, no, we don't want your help. 
because you're not like us. You guys didn't stay pure, only we did. We're better than you. So you have this super negative, this is 450 B.C., all right, and that's happening. So now, now you're talking, you know, we're, we're, we're in the 30-ishes A.D., right? So for almost 500 years, this has been happening. And so that's why John says, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank it for himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Okay, and she's going to start giving us a little bit more history as to what the Sumerians did and how they worship differently now than even the Jews do. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. All right, she's, she's talking, she thinks Jesus is talking about a physical water. And he tells her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. And the fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true, in the sense that she just said, I have no husband. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place uh, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. All right, so... She's here saying, okay, she, she, there's something clicks. He says something to her. He, she sees and understands this guy is different. He's different from the regular racist Jew that I'm used to coming in contact with. He's the Messiah. There's something about him. And so she says, and she brings up her own history of what it is to be in Samaria. And they, they, the Samaritans actually changed the, the Torah. And they changed locations and everything that, that the, the mountain where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments was actually in Samaria. And, and all these things, all these main big accounts happen right there in Samaria. So they worship on our mountain. And the Jews claim that the place we must worship them is in Jerusalem. And here, really what she's asking is, where can I find God? That when you boil it down, that's what she's really getting at. Where can I find God? I, I've sinned, I realize I've sinned, and I need to make a sacrifice. Where do I go? How can I find God? That's what she's asking. In verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, right? That's the God of the universe shows up and chooses Israel, only Israel, and only ethnic Israel. That's what he's claiming. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. I know, I have faith that this Messiah that I've learned about is coming. And Jesus declared, I 
the one you are speaking to. I am he. He breaks down barriers. He breaks down barriers socially, economically, ethnically. He breaks them down and destroys them and tramples on them. He says, I am he. And so while we can see that the gospel is radically inclusive of all people, the gospel message is also radically exclusive. So I want to look at a short passage here in Matthew chapter 25. It says this. And the Son of Man comes in his glory. All the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. And the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All right? So this is Jesus preaching here. He's preaching about himself in the third person. The Son of Man comes. He's going to separate. The guy as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Right? There's another childhood song. He said, I don't want to be a goat. Nope. <laughs> I had no idea what I was singing about back then, but I sang it. Um, uh, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger or invite, invite you in or needed clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's inclusive. As inclusive as inclusive can be. And yet he says, I will say to those on his left, depart from me. You are accursed and into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. And you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or in sick in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's exclusive. That's as exclusive as a message as you could really preach, but yet it's for all people. And if anybody who's willing to come and believe in Jesus has the forgiveness of sin, it's done. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. We just sang that, didn't we? Okay. How about the exclusive, inclusive gospel? Again, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Gentile, when you read that in, in the Bible, there's Jew, ethnic Jew, and there's Gentile. It simply means nations, okay? There's the Jews, and then there's all the other nations, all the other ethnicities. There is no difference between a Jew or any other nation. Why? All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet all are justified freely by his grace, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 
We have this inclusive language of the world and all people, but yet those people need to believe. You need to believe. That's how we can be inclusive. Okay, how can this be possible? It doesn't sound inclusive. What does it mean for us? We're going to talk about that, but I want to quote a, a, a Christian apologist. Apologist just means a, a defender of the faith. His name's uh, Ravi Zacharias. I just want to read uh, a a little story and kind of fill in some blanks here. He says this. A few days ago, my wife and I spoke with a a Buddhist man who said that Christianity was bigoted, intolerant religion. His rationale for making such a statement was grounded, so he said, in the fact that Buddhism had a canopy which embraced all religious truth equally. All right, we talked about this last week. That tolerance now, and he's going to get to this, but tolerance... Doesn't, doesn't any longer mean, it no longer means uh, I completely disagree with that true statement you made, but listen, I still respect you as a human being, and I still care about you, right? What, what, what inclusion has meant and what it means now, and this validity of truth equally, that to have tolerance with somebody is to say, whatever you just say, whatever you believe, I'm going to put that up as an equally validly truth statement. That it's it's good for me, it's good for you. Even though we disagree, that's okay, it's good for you. And that's not what truth is, okay? So that's that's what he's saying here. Christianity was bigoted because it did not place equal value on each spiritual or philosophical assertion, assertion, uh, even if the compelling claims were mutually exclusive. The technical word for this view is religious pluralism. In other words, to assert one belief system to be true and another to be false constitutes intolerance. And this concept of intolerance has become widely accepted in Western culture, what I just said. Right, we, oh, that's, that's intolerant there if you say that they, they're, they're not saved or by their religion. It's intolerant. It needs to be equally true. He, uh, he teaches English, and so I'm skipping kind of the paragraph of what he does, but he, he puts this phrase there, I went, uh, in, in past tense. I went to France last year. He says, this is a simple past verb tense in which donates a complicated action in the past. If a student would have identified this sentence with the future, right, they checked the box as future, not past, the answer would have been incorrect and could have uh, conceivably caused confusion in a practical situation. Thus far, I have not been labeled intolerant uh, for correcting English grammar problems. The answer to, I went to France last year, cannot be both simple past and future at the same time. It has to be one or the other. We are not prejudiced in stating that, one, uh, that it is one or the other. Christianity, like English grammar, makes specific truth claims. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes from the Father but by me. That's a truth claim. And when a truth claim is made, it, necessar- it is necessarily exclusive, but not bigoted or prejudiced. Exclusivity in this context simply means that not, uh, that not all our possibilities can be correct at the same time. As the apologist Walter Martin stated, truth by definition is exclusive. If truth were all inclusive, nothing would be false. So he has these two, two, two aspects of Christianity. First, Christian truths are made for all people, of all nations, of every culture for all time. Christianity speaks to the world and not specific people groups or a nation. In this sense, Christianity is radically inclusive. Second, Jesus of Nazareth's truth claims necessarily exclude other claims. They have to. And we looked at this 
uh, well, eight, nine weeks ago now, and we looked at uh, just Jesus. Who was he? He had to either be liar, lunatic, or Lord, looking at a C.S. Lewis quote. He can't just be a good teacher. He makes truth claims. All right, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for Hope Community Church? Where do we go from here? What are, what are some takeaway points? What are some application points? Okay, that if we say, okay, I believe Scripture, and I believe that, yes, it is for all people equally, because all have sinned. And yet, there is a strong truth claim there that I also must uphold and teach the same way that Jesus did. Our vision statement at Hope that has been for 22 years and for us here at this location for a year and a half, the vision of Hope Community Church is this. It is to honor God. What? How? By helping as many people as possible. As many people as possible. What, just that? We just want to fill the doors? Right? No. What do we want to do? We want to help as many people as possible become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And there are certain things and things that I've said tonight that are exclusive and that are offensive. The gospel is offensive to a lot of people because it makes them trust something beyond themselves. A verse that uh, is really important to uh, at least the staff at Hope and it influences how we do what we do, at least in our, in our services and that kind of thing. And it's, it's from Isaiah 57, 14. It says this, build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. I thought it was fitting because that song, that special that was uh, sung, he's, the, the, the chorus there, at least one of the parts says, uh, I'd go to church, but you would only burden me. Listen, that's not the gospel. <laughs> Right? And, and what we need to be doing as a church is removing obstacles out of the way. And so I want to be careful that when I'm teaching, when I'm preaching, that I'm not saying things like, hey, remember when King David did this? No, I don't remember when King David did that. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? I, I'm trying to be careful with the language in which I choose. Right? There's a reason why we use the music and the style that we do here. There's a reason why we teach the way we do and use humor sometimes. I, not on purpose for me a lot, but, but it's there sometimes, right? There's a reason for it. And this is why we want to remove obstacles out of the way of people. We only want, the only obstacle for them is that simply a choice to say yes or no to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our goal. And that's what we want to be able to do. Um, I, I, I teach systematic theology, just a theology class that I teach um, every week, every Thursday downtown to 10 interns and a few people auditing the course. And um, I teach it this way, uh, in a sense of <laughs> theology matters, right? And there are certain aspects of theology that I need to be incredibly exclusive about. And yet there are some that I don't care, right? The... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I almost called him the, the apostle, um, Tim Keller. The, uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, out in New York, he, um, he calls these defeater beliefs, right? So we look at the age of the earth, for example. Man, where if I'm up here, it's got, yep, young earth, it's got to be 24 literal days, it's got to be these different things, yep, it's got to be just like this. And they say, man, I can't believe that because I, I grew up believing this and I've read some books and I've studied science and that just doesn't line up. And if that's what the church is teaching, then I don't want anything to do with it. All right, so, so, so Keller would call that a defeater belief. And the way that I, I use that analogy is of a raft. And I take a raft of these five boards, right? These five sticks, logs, you want to call them, right? And they, 
You want to call them whatever you want, the fundamentals of the faith or the, the, the necessary truth in order to be saved, okay, to, to boil it down to its bare minimum. But then on that raft, there are other boxes of, of cargo. So let's say that we're up north in the, in the boundary waters, and we're going to be up there for a few weeks, right? That raft is essential, that if you start chopping off logs to my raft, we're no, like you're, I'm, you're, you're off the boat, right? You're not allowed to be on this boat with me anymore. I need to be exclusive with that. But then when it comes to other theologies, some of them are incredibly important, right? If we're up camping and you, and you throw my leftover, my, my dirty socks in the water, right? But it's hot out and I'm wearing flip-flops. I, I don't really care, right? That's a theology that maybe not is that important that I don't need to die on that hill for. And yet there are other ones, though, that are really important. And, and that's, a whole other, that's why we teach systematic theology, to <laughs> differentiate those two. But all I'm trying to say is, what are obstacles? What are these defeater beliefs that maybe as a church we, we uphold too high? And so there's just some questions to consider. What, what are historical examples of barriers that the church has unnecessarily added resulted in people being separated from the gospel or from the church? Historically, right? This could, be the, this could be the Crusades. This could be upholding slavery. This could be uh, hypocrisy and sex scandals and all these different things. Those are, those are bad examples. How can we help? How can we move forward in this and not being hypocrites and actually looking at the word of God and what does it teach? What are some examples of obstacles that the church can and should remove so that others might hear the gospel message? Other things that, that we're doing that I'm holding on to that I don't need to, those defeater beliefs. And then what are some examples where the church needs to remain or maintain distinction, exclusivity? What are those major doctrines that I must hold firmly to? Because that's what the scripture teaches. That's what Jesus teaches. Though it may result in cultural pushback and even persecution. Um, I uh, started a, a meetup. Are you familiar with that thing? Um, a group thing. And it's for skeptics. And I'm going to be doing it for the first time on December 6th, just over, over here at the Barrel Theory. And, and just ask questions, right? Like, what are, you, what are you interested in talking about? And I have a lot more people that were interested than I ever thought would be. Um, and so, you know, tab might run a little, little high for me that night. But that's okay, right? Because I want to be able to tear down those barriers. And you know what was a barrier for a lot of people? me standing up here lecturing for 45 minutes, right? So why not just go and ask questions? Why not have them talking, right? I don't need to, they want to hear me lecture, they can come to church. All right, I'm not there to preach at them. All right, someone actually asked, like what they posted on there, like, this is some, is this some hip way to proselytize? <laughs> no, I just want to talk. I want to open this door for conversation, right? Now there are barriers there that even there that I need to be careful with how I say and how I word things, but still being exclusive that I know there are going to be people in that room that are going to say, no, I can't accept that. What are they? So, in application, and as we close, I want you to think about this. In what ways do you need to repent of exclusivity? Do we exclude people based on, based on ethnicity, on, on race, on education, on financial situations, on whatever, geography, sports teams, right? Do we exclude people on things that's not about the gospel? How can we include? Do we need to repent? Do you need to repent of exclusivity? And then secondly, how can we rejoice in the fact that we are all sinners? All of us are sinners, yet we're saved by grace, that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. 
We're gonna have a time of communion like we do every week here at Lower Town, and we're gonna look at the, the bread which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sin. And as we take these elements, all I would ask is if you're a follower of Jesus, if you say, yes, I, I believe in Jesus, we just ask you to come and, and take those elements when we're uh, singing and, and do it in your time. You can sit and pray and stand and sing, um, whatever, however you want to do that. Um, there's nothing magical about these. They just simply are a time to remember what Christ has done and how he, in his divine grace, allowed me, a Gentile, salvation. He didn't have to do that. So can we remember and rejoice in how Christ included us and how we can extend that message of grace to all peoples for all times? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion on us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we were wandering away from you so prone to wander, so prone to leave the God that we love. God, I thank you that you seek after us because we're lost. We're not where we should be. And you have provided a way to make it all right. That you can call us sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. So God, we rejoice in that. We thank you for that. It's in Christ's most precious name that we pray. Amen.